Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, David Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. One of the most pressing economic issues of our time, one likely to turn up in the presidential campaign if it ever moves from personalities to policies, is this one. Are there ways to reduce the gap between winners and losers in the U.S. economy that don't have the unwelcome side effect of reducing the pace at which the economy grows? That's a question that Arthur Okun, a Brookings scholar who was an economic advisor to Kennedy and Johnson, asked in a book published 40 years ago, Equality and Efficiency, the Big Trade-Off. Okun argued that redistributing income from the rich to the poor takes a toll on economic growth. He wrote, quote, Trade-offs are the central study of the economist. You can't have your cake and eat it too is a good candidate for the fundamental theorem of economic analysis. We can't have our cake of market efficiency and share it equally. Now, the issues that Oaken raised back in 1975 are strikingly relevant today. That's one reason the Brookings Press is reissuing Oaken's classic with a new foreword by Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary who knew and was inspired by Art Oaken. Every measure of inequality has widened significantly in the past 40 years. Back in 1975, Oaken noted with disapproval that the top 1% of families had nearly as much income after tax as all the families in the bottom 20%. Well, imagine what he'd say today. The top 1% has twice as much income as the bottom 20%. And now both Democrats and Republicans worry aloud that poor kids in America have a disturbingly small chance of making it to the middle class or above as adults, though they do disagree on what to do about that. Now, there are at least three possibilities. One is that Oaken was right, and we have to choose between more equality and more growth. A second is that Oaken was right, but today's policies are so screwed up that there are policies that could boost equality and boost efficiency if only Congress would adopt them. And a third is that Oaken was wrong, that there really isn't that much of a trade-off between equality and efficiency. Now, you can find economists in each of those three camps. We brought four economists together at Brookings the other day to talk about all this. There was agreement on some issues, disagreement on others. You can watch the whole conversation online if you like. But here are four gleanings. One, a lot of people, definitely not everybody, think the gap between winners and losers in the U.S. has grown so much that the government ought to do more about it. But pretty much everyone is distressed by recent trends in wages and incomes of Americans at the bottom and in the middle class. Few people, and that includes economists, politicians, and the public, think we're doing everything we can to address that problem. A new Wall Street Journal NBC News poll found many more Americans, 68%, are worried about middle class stagnation than are worried about the gap between the wealthy and the rest of us. Gleaning two, if we can find policies that would make the economy grow faster— and also reduce inequality, we should embrace them. And there are some candidates. The Earned Income Tax Credit, which offers a cash bonus to low-wage workers, could be improved. The Social Security Disability Insurance Program could be revamped so it doesn't discourage those with mild disabilities from working. We could do a better job at education. We could rethink and revamp some regulation. We could provide more paid leave for new parents and those caring for the elderly so that more caretakers can take jobs. Gleaning three. Taxing the rich more heavily to pay for this clearly makes sense, as long as we're reasonably sure it won't discourage the most productive at the top from working hard and won't discourage people like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook from turning great ideas into reality. And if it means we end up with fewer masters of the universe on Wall Street, well, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. And finally, gleaning four. If the wealthy are using their money not to buy yachts but to buy politicians, that's dangerous. Oaken wondered why capitalism survived democracy. 
Why, he asks, don't the masses rise up against the wealthy minority? My colleague Justin Wolfers the other day worried that democracy may not survive capitalism, given recent campaign finance trends. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. My guest today is Stuart Butler, a senior fellow in economic studies, an adjunct professor at Georgetown's McCourt School of Public Service, a visiting fellow at the Convergence Center for Policy Resolution, and a member of the editorial board of Health Affairs. Prior to joining Brookings last year, Dr. Butler spent 35 years at the Heritage Foundation, where he was director of the Center for Policy Innovation and, at one time, the vice president for domestic and economic policy studies. He is an expert on a wide range of topics, including health care reform, economic mobility, the federal budget, federal entitlements, and, our topic today, the future of higher education. Thank you for joining me today, Stuart. It's my pleasure. We could talk about so many subjects <laughs> in your brief, but I'm very, I'm very excited to be talking about this one topic that you've been focusing on, the future of, of higher education. Now, uh, on a personal note, my child uh, will be college-aged in about 10 years. What's college going to look like for her then? Well, I think that's perfect timing uh, in a way because I think 10 years from now, college is going to look a lot different. I mean, it's true right now that there's a wide variety of types of, of college uh, from the four-year college, of course, to the two-year, uh, private and public and so on. But what I think you're going to find is that in each of these sectors, public, private and so forth, you're going to see a, an incredible range of types of institutions and types of courses. I think that's one of the first things you, that your daughter will see. I think secondly, and, and you'll be happy to know this, I think the cost of education is actually going to go down potentially quite sharply over that period. It's already beginning to happen, as we can talk about in, in, in some areas. But I really think that you're seeing um, a f going to see a fundamental change over the next several years uh, with prices dropping to you know, half or, or even much lower uh, uh, in, uh, in these areas. I think that uh, also you're going to see a combination of sort of activities as being part of college. I think we're going to move away from uh, solely the idea that, you know, your child goes away for four years uh, to a residential college and then comes out and looks for a job uh, to one where there's going to be a lot of different experiences. It's more than just a, a semester abroad, but the kind of externships, uh, the, the kinds of maybe um, part of the time is going to be spent in an industry with with courses associated with it, for example. I think part could be at home. I don't know if that's good news or bad news, but uh, uh, where maybe some of the initial courses are done online, maybe even while your child's still at high school. Uh, I think you're just going to see a lot of changes of that kind uh, over the next several years. And I think we're, we're already beginning to see them, and I think they're just going to accelerate. A lot of, uh, a lot of parents and students themselves are concerned about costs. Sure. What are some of the factors that you think will be driving costs down? Well, I think, first of all, that um, uh, people just can't pay it. Um, uh, debt for college tuition now exceeds credit card debt in the United States. Prices keep going up more rapidly than the general cost of, uh, of, of items. And this just can't go on. You can't have a, a trend like this that goes on forever. Other things start to begin to happen uh, to change it. So I think cost is really going to be a factor. The other factor is really that there are very interesting developments both in technology and in business organization in the, in the uh, higher education sector that are going to enable big reductions in price to occur 
with actually, I was going to say no drop in quality, actually increases in quality in many respects for many of the students in terms of, of really being customized for what they want and need. I think that's what's going to happen. But cost is certainly the, the primary driver. And the technology, I think, is uh, it's like a perfect storm in a way for the current structure. I know you've talked a lot about, uh, in terms of the technology, um, distance learning technology is improving. You mm-hmm. also have the uh, MOOC, the Massive Open Online Course. Right. Are those the kinds of technology changes you're, you're seeing? Yes, I think so. And, and within those, um, there's constant refinement going on. Uh, when you think of MOOCs, I think most people tend to think of these huge courses with you know, 20,000, 30,000 uh, people in them. Many of them never finish the course and so forth. That was true uh, a year or 18 months ago. But there's been constant refinement uh, of that particular uh, technology. And I think just generally we're seeing in the information world just um, quite incredible developments and innovations in information how you get information, how you share it, uh, how you verify it, and so on. And that's going to affect uh, the the way in which uh, online information, online interactions are going to occur at the college level. So I think think that's what we're going to see. And just as anybody who has an iPhone or so on knows, this technology is constantly changing. And, and improving in, in, in very creative ways. And that's what's going to flow into higher education. I know that in, uh, when MOOCs first came out, they kind of had a, had a bad reputation, sure. as, as you indicated. Thousands of people would sign up for them because they were mostly free or they were very cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people didn't finish them. I myself signed up for one, didn't mm-hmm. finish it. But uh, what's different today then about MOOCs specifically is it, is it like we've seen some partnerships with some of the major universities who are delivering that? Yes. I, I, I think that what you saw in MOOCs is what you see in, in lots of innovations. Uh, you think just the very beginning of the of, uh, uh, you know, individual uh, computers, of the laptops and so forth. Many of those today, when you look at them, look incredibly crude and expensive and not really very good. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in MOOCs. We, we've moved steadily away from these really sort of mass sort of generic kinds of MOOCs that, uh, where there's a lot of dropouts into very refined versions of that. And, and, and as you say, you're now seeing uh, some of the leaders in that sector like Udacity, Coursera, uh, forming very interesting partnerships um, with uh, well-established uh, universities, even in these Ivy Leagues. I mean, edX, which is um, a product of, uh, of MIT and Harvard, uh, is, is a a very interesting entrant into this area and are developing all kinds of partnerships with other uh, universities. So it's a very different MOOC today than it was later on. You're also seeing um, uh, developments in terms of uh, how do you link together the MOOC concept with pretty traditional testing and evaluation. Uh, So you're seeing uh, all over the world, really, uh, MOOCs establishing... uh, kind of proper examinations and so forth and uh, uh, assistance, uh, faculty being involved and so on. Also very creative ways of getting things like peer review. Um, We see this in lots of sectors already. We call it crowdsourcing uh, and so on. We're seeing that in the the MOOC area so that you do a paper, uh, even in poetry, let alone something like mathematics. Um, MOOCs are developing very interesting ways in which you can get feedback from your, not just your professor, 
uh, but from other students. And that can be very, very helpful as it is in you know, traditional colleges when people go and uh, study together and prepare for exams together. That's the kind of peer interaction that you can actually do in very effective, sophisticated ways. And all these kinds of of innovations are sort of creeping in. We're not creeping. They're accelerating into this whole area of MOOCs. So I think it's a it's not the only technology, but it's a technology that I think you've got to see changing um, and, and will see changing very rapidly and therefore fitting into what we really need to get the maximum benefit of this kind of technology for the purposes that we have when we think about getting a college education. That's, the, that's where we are now, this re- constant refinement. I want to come back to that point you just made. I think that's really central for the purposes of a higher education. But I want to go back to edX real quick. Uh, you just wrote an op-ed. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes on our okay. webpage. You characterize the new Arizona State edX MOOC as, quote, another blow to traditional college. Right. Why? Because what, what's happening now is, is uh, these MOOCs, in combination in this case with a state university, are recognizing that a lot of courses, particularly first-year courses, are really, in a sense, fairly simple kinds of courses. They're giving you content, information. They're really checking that you reach a certain basic standard in those areas. And what this particular uh, combination is doing uh, is actually essentially saying we can give you um, the first year of, of college at, in their case, at least half of what it would normally cost you. It could actually go, I think, a lot lower than that. But that's what they're doing and, and therefore saying, you know, you don't need to go and pay um, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in tuition to sit in a classroom with 200 other students with a professor you don't actually meet uh, and having all your papers graded by somebody two or three years older than you are. Um, we can basically provide a, a far better form of that kind of interaction, you know, where you can uh, have a lot of side notes on online. You can stop and go back and make sure you understood the point that was just made, all these sorts of things, at a fraction of the price. That means that the first year of college in most uh, four-year college, in my view, is absolutely vulnerable from a business point of view to groups like um, the uh, uh, sort of ASU, edX combination coming in and essentially saying, don't spend 30 grand for this. You can have it for a half to a a quarter or less from that. Get that. ASU, uh, uh, Arizona State in this case, is going to give you credit for it. It's going to be uh, a transcript that does not even indicate that you took a MOOC. It's just saying you reached the standard necessary in, for a first-year class. And quite frankly, um, for Econ 101, isn't that really all you need? That's what I needed. Right, probably. exactly, and, and for most people. So it becomes transferable. It becomes not identified as a uh, MOOC as opposed to anything else. Uh, and it's a fraction of the price, and you can transfer it. What's not to like about that? Now, that seems to benefit the student very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but focusing on the needs of a university, you, you've talked a lot in your, in your research about uh, this idea of cross-subsidies mm-hmm. in the universities where these huge, say, first-year classes are subsidizing the more uh, expensive uh, maybe uh, classes and the research of certain professors. So how is, the, how is a university going to deal with that potential loss of, of revenue in its traditional business model? Well, I think in two ways. One of two ways. They can be in denial, 
in which case they're going, uh, many universities are going to face enormous uh, uh, budgetary problems as they find that the students that they were previously seeing as sort of cash cows in the first year or so uh, disappear into other institutions. So many today, of course, are going to community colleges for the first couple of years for precisely the same reason, to avoid those uh, high costs and to be closer at home. Uh, so I think some are going to be in denial. Others are going to reassess their business model and they're going to change it. They're going to change their pricing. They're going to change what they offer and what they decide to allow students to take somewhere else and transfer in to them. That's the kind of change. And, and quite honestly, you see this in other industries. This is nothing um, you know, different from what happened in the newspaper business. Do you think about the airline business? Not everybody travels and pays the same price uh, in an airline, uh, in the same plane. Um, you see it in other areas too. You see it in hotels. I mean, you know, uh, the idea of saying we have a product and different people want um, different features of that product and we price it differently for different people is quite common in other industries. And that's what's going to, I think, be uh, one of the big changes in higher education over the next several years. Now, now what about the kinds of institutions uh, that have incredible brand power behind them, the Harvards, the Yales. Um, I'll plug your alma mater, St. Andrews. Thank you. My alma mater, Georgetown. <laughs> Very good. Uh, are, are these um, institutions, uh, you think they are going to uh, change their business models? Or are they going to expect, well, students still want to pay you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to come spend four years and get the Harvard degree? I think they're probably going to do the latter at least for a while. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a dangerous strategy. Uh, to think that's what they uh, can do and, in a sense, get away with. But there's no question that brand is a very important part of the value uh, of higher education. In part, you know, that's because uh, students and employers tend to say, we don't really have a good way of measuring quality in higher education. It's not something we can look up it's easily. Uh, and so the brand of a high-quality institution becomes a substitute for other better measures. Uh, insofar as other measures start to come in and be more widely used, and that is happening, uh, then I think hiding behind a brand, so to speak, to say, well, you know, um, we can't tell you or there isn't any measurement to say exactly what a Harvard degree is worth, but you know it's worth a lot more than anywhere else. That's going to be a harder um, argument to make as more and more information starts to become um, available. In fact, Brookings has just brought out a, a new analysis uh, looking at, uh, at how you uh, identify the value of, of particular institutions in terms of employment and so forth. And, and that's just another step in refining and improving information. Right. So I, I, I think that the idea that you can just say, well, Georgetown or St. Andrews or Harvard, uh, you know it's going to be better value. That's not going to last for too much longer. And indeed, edX, as I mentioned, um, was a, uh, a product of Harvard and, M and MIT. I think some of those elite universities are also are beginning to recognize that they've got to think about their brand a little bit more um, carefully in the future. Uh, many of the prestige universities already offer – uh, in some cases, online courses, uh, in some cases, uh, things like executive MBAs and so on, which are not quite the same as the 
regular MBA, and they're wrestling with how do you offer less expensive versions for different customers, you know, who can't just come maybe full time for three years or four years, and they and they are struggling in some cases with how to um, how to create those sort of spin off products under the same brand without undermining, you know, the brand of four years really expensive uh, university. And and you're going to see a lot of, I think, uh, attempts of these prestige universities to try to come to terms with this. Not all will be as successful as others. There's there's a point in uh, thinking about the, any university that anyone goes to in terms of the social function that it provides to a young person leaving home. You go to uh, any of these universities and you become a member of that tribe, Absolutely, as it yes. were, and the mm-hmm. colors of the sports team. And you, you go to keg parties and you go to study hall and you study on the lawn and you, you're in the, this organization and that or You graduate and, you know, it's a real – it's a part of everyone's identity. Um, is, there a, is there a threat to that sort of um, uh, identity related to alma mater? I think most people, not everybody, uh, goes to college – uh, and university thinking that that's a really important part. There are others who want to get in and out as quickly as possible and cheaply as possible because of their particular situation or their courses. But let's just take for the sake of argument that people uh, in general do want those kinds of features. I think, first of all, you have to ask yourself, is that something you need to have four years of? Um, you know, do you really need to spend a quarter of a million dollars uh, or your parents uh, to make good friends? Um, in the English universities, for example, um, it's typically three years, not four years. I don't think people who go to Oxford and Cambridge sort of feel they've been shortchanged. Uh, some other universities in the UK, uh, the Open University, for example, has even shorter uh, periods of being actually on campus and a lot more being done uh, online. It has one of the, it has uh, among the highest satisfaction rates in any, of any British university, just below Oxford and Cambridge, and much higher than a lot of other traditional, uh, in this case, three-year universities in, in the UK. So I think what you're going to see is um, an assessment of sort of, you know, how much and how should it cost, how much should it cost? Um, and I think uh, the keg parties and so on, I think, can maybe occupy a shorter period than four years, um, given the cost differences and given the opportunity, say, for if somebody could complete two years of what is today a four-year uh, um, college, say, in their own hometown, maybe living at home, maybe having as part of that those two years um, some um, partnership with uh, a business that they're, you know, where that's part of their major and, and so on, they may feel they get a, a really good value for that two years and then go away for a couple of years and play into mural sports and have a good time and and so on. It doesn't follow that all of these elements all have to be delivered in the same way that they are today. That's what I think is going to change. And as I said, some people are going to value some more than not everyone. Not everybody goes Greek, you know, when they go to college, even if it's available. It isn't even always available in a lot of colleges. It wasn't so, at Georgetown. That's right. So, so I think you're going to just see this this um, variety so that that the elements that people want are provided, but not necessarily in quite the way or for quite the period that they are today. Let me go back to something you you said a bit earlier. You were talking about um, the purposes of higher education. Uh, we we know that in the past, at least, having a high school uh, diploma in, in America was kind of the ticket into the middle class. That's right. Um, and now uh, now we're seeing that uh, that's not enough. Having a college degree, even 
more and more is uh, the ticket into the middle mm-hmm. class. So as uh, as as new students uh, and as colleges and employers are looking at the transformed higher ed landscape, how can everyone be certain that the purposes of higher education, whatever they are, are being satisfied? Right. Well, first of all, um, you're quite right that the college degree or the equivalent today, not necessarily college as such, but higher education, it really is um, a must-have in order to do well in today's economy and to reach the middle class. Uh, The other part of that or the other side of that same coin is that for those who cannot right now obtain that kind of level of skills, uh, either because of cost or because they've got to look after their family in some way and can't move and so on, they are really left behind today. So I think when you look at the future, uh, part of what I think the result of the uh, trends that I've mentioned is going to be is that you're going to see greater customization in higher education to reach those people who today can't readily and easily get this. Or they get a college degree and then discover when they start looking for work that that degree in psychology didn't really prepare them for what they wanted to to do. That happens so much today. Uh, Or they have huge debt and don't finish today. So I I think you're going to see the customization developing that way. And then I think you're going to see um, industry generally or, you know, the workforce generally um, placing greater um, precision on exactly what skills are needed in certain parts of the economy and that that those skill needs um, are going to be reflected more and more in what happens in higher education in part because of the way technology works, because it's really good at linking up uh, supply and demand in this sense. Uh, but also, I think, because industry in general, employers in general, are going to become more involved in, in this. It's already beginning to happen uh, in this country in certain areas. I mentioned um, you know, Google in one of my pieces and uh, Coursera uh, designing classes for people who want to go into the high-tech area. I think that's going to become more and more common. So I think you're going to have on the workforce end, on the employer end, um, greater inclination to start to discuss what's needed and to push higher education institutions and to support higher education institutions that begin to really do a much better job at linking students uh, to uh, the skills they need to be successful after graduation. We have not done a good – in fact, we've been doing a steadily worse job at that in the last several you know, years, decades. Well, what are some of the other consequences then of the transformation that's happening for, for students, for graduates, for the economy, for U.S. competitiveness, for the labor market? I think it's going to be generally very good news uh, all around because I think if you have a, a higher education system that actually does uh, provide students with the skills they really need at a much lower cost than today – Uh, for the workforce, that's good for everybody and good for the economy. It means that employers um, are going to get uh, people with the skills they need. Uh, I think that's going to be much better in terms of then incomes in the future, uh, that the more that employees have have skills and capacity that matches what the employer wants, then 
that's going to be good for both sides of employment uh, and in productivity. I think that's going to happen uh, uh, very much. Uh, the number of people who go into the economy with a lot of debt and then they don't have the number of uh, the kind of skills they need, I think that's going to reduce. That's going to be good uh, for the economy and for those uh, students uh, uh, themselves. And I think in just in general, you're going to have a much um, a much closer linkage between what the higher education system is producing and what the workforce needs are going to be in the future. I heard one, uh, somebody describe it this way the other day. He said, if you look at, at employers, um, part of what they look at very much is, is the supply chain issue. How do we make sure we get the supply of components into uh, what we say? They spend a lot of time looking at steel, health costs, and so forth. What I think employers are saying more and more is we have a supply chain problem when it comes to people who graduate from college and come into the workforce. They have credentials that don't necessarily actually um, properly indicate strengths, what are the strengths and weaknesses of their higher education. Um, that's a problem. So they're taking a chance. They find really good people who just don't have uh, certain parts of the skills necessary. They could have taken those uh, courses had they known that that was what was necessary. There's, you're seeing mismatch, a supply chain mismatch. And I think one of the overall uh, effects of what I'm talking about is that that supply chain problem will, will become less severe uh, over time and therefore much more efficient for both the, the employee and the employer. That's going to be good for productivity, for the economy. It's going to be good for wage rates uh, for the employees. So I think it's going to be a very, very important part of, uh, of improving the economy and improving the, the return uh, to work in this country. I'm thinking now in terms of uh, potential uh, barriers and pitfalls to the continued development of, say, the technology. So the technology side, these companies, Coursera and, and edX, and the innovative universities that are partnering with them, they're going to continue doing what they're going to do. Um, <clears throat> but certainly there are some, some significant barriers out there, I'm thinking perhaps the accreditation system, um, maybe even resistance from within the academy itself in certain quarters. What kinds of, of, of barriers do you see out there? Well, certainly uh, resistance within the academy is, is, is a significant factor for a lot of universities. You see this all the time. Um, it's very hard f um, for administrators in universities often to get a faculty to think differently. There was a very similar trend, I, uh, I should point out, in, in the newspaper business. It was very difficult initially to get to get uh, a journalist to think differently about what a journalist is. Whereas if you look at the typical journalist today, it really bears almost no comparison to 20 years ago. Uh, so I, I think, yes, there's going to be uh, resistance uh, of that kind. And you pointed you, out, I'm sorry, you pointed out the sage on the stage model has yes, been around that, for 2,000 years. Absolutely, yeah, uh, absolutely. So there's a resistance to that. Uh, and that's going, to be, that's going to be why some universities, I think, are not going to be able to adapt and are going to have very severe problems in, in the long run. I think uh, 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 in addition, as you said, there's things like accreditation. Accreditation was originally designed to give employers uh, as well as students some sense of quality. There are a couple of problems with it. Um, one is it looks at institutions and not courses. You can go to uh, an accredited prestige university for that matter, but certainly an accredited university, and take courses that are not really very good uh, and don't 
and, and, and if you go on Rate, rate My Professor, uh, students know this. They know courses that are not good. They hear about them and they avoid them as best they can. So accreditation, first of all, doesn't tell you much about what the individual classes are you're, you're taking. The second thing it doesn't do is really give you a good measure of quality. It's very input-related. It's very much related to, well, how many PhDs are on, on the faculty? You know, what kinds of structure do you have? It isn't related to when, grad, when graduates, when, when people graduate from your institution, what happens to them? And when most people think about quality, that's what they think. That's why things like U.S. News and World Report and the Kiplinger's analysis and that sort of thing uh, have started to develop because people want to have another measure of quality. They want to say, well, what actually will happen to me when I go through this? So, um, but accreditation is used by the established institutions to simply make it difficult for um, other kinds of ventures with very different models and that uh, you know, don't have the sage on the stage model. Uh, to really get started or to get – or for their students to get federal aid. Right now, if you want to get federal aid, you have to go to an accredited institution. Uh, well, that limits obviously the number of, of, of institutions that, uh, that many students can go to, particularly students who need help, financial help. Uh, you want them to be able to go to more customized creative cases, but sometimes they can't do that. So I think accreditation is a big problem and I think is going to – um, gradually be altered. Uh, there are already efforts, including by the administration, uh, to look at, at, the, at the very least, some alternative accreditation process, a faster process, one that recognizes more, uh, more accurately the, the new types of ventures that are coming on the scene with online. I think that's one uh, trend. I think another trend, and you see this if you look, uh, if you look what happens in other countries, uh, that uh, sectors of the economy, and I don't just mean necessarily employers as we think about them, but think of areas like the arts, um, music, and so on, to say, let's look at uh, other institutions to measure quality. Um, uh, in the UK, for instance, there is a, uh, an institution called the City and Guilds, and, and it actually grew up over many years uh, as really a combination of uh, unions and uh, employers that set standards for particular courses. And you could take these courses anywhere. Uh, my brother took uh, a number of City and Guilds courses at his high school and technical college, which were university-level uh, courses, and they were, uh, they were uh, credentialed or certified through City and Guilds. And so it didn't really matter where he took them. Any employer knew. When my brother had, you know, physics at a certain level, they knew what that meant. Uh, whereas if you go to... An accredited university in the, U in the U.S., you don't actually know what a particular course is, what was in included in it, and what quality uh, it is. So I think you're going to see more and more of that erosion, I hope certainly, erosion of the accreditation system based on institutions and not sort of looking at, uh, at what most people think of as value in the future. And it's gradual replacement by measurements of particular courses, but and, and those measurements um, really um, reflecting what um, uh, potential employers in those areas really say is necessary um, for that kind of course and for that kind of credential. You're going to see more and more of that happening. It's already beginning to happen. It's going to happen more and more. And so to, uh, to extend beyond uh, 
<clears throat> the bachelor's degree. What about graduate school? How is this going to affect masters and doctorate programs and MBAs and that sort of thing? Well, I think to the extent that that uh, masters and MBAs are, to the extent you have um, sectors where um, there's a very high degree of interaction between the student and a professor and so on, and probably not a great deal. But uh, I think when you look at comps, you know, comprehensive exams and so on as part of the PhD programs or or um, uh, courses in the master's program. I think a lot of those are going to be um, provided in a different way to get uh, a cost down. Uh, Georgia Tech, uh, uh, for instance, um, a very prestigious university in, in, in terms of its graduate uh, programs is already experimenting with uh, using online and, and actually MOOC uh, structures uh, to uh, work with them to bring the cost down of their master's degree to less than $10,000. Um, so that's a prestigious institution that on one level doesn't really need to do this, but is saying this way we can bring it down so that uh, this graduate degree is much more um, a possibility for a much wider range of students in terms of costs and can be done in a, in a more refined way and have more students involved and so on. I think you're going to see it we're going to see changes in the graduate level courses uh, for this reason. I think, uh, like I said, all these things are really beginning to happen. Um, so when we look ahead, I think we're going to just see more and more of it, and uh, it's going to spread more generally uh, through the higher education uh, sector. And in each case, the cost is coming down. I think that's the, the, one of the factors we see throughout this. So that's why I said at the very beginning in terms of uh, your child that when you look at the future, the idea that going to university and college in America, which so many people think of it now, is like, I was going to say buying a house. It's like buying a couple of houses for, uh, for a lot of families, that that is not what it's going to look like in the future. And also the fact that today, um, I think it's now 50 to 60 percent of graduates uh, do not find full-time work in their, in their major or in their area of concentration. I mean, that's, that's an indictment uh, given the costs. Uh, and so I think these trends are going to alter that really fundamentally. I think that's, uh, that's fascinating. Um, and I'm going to, maybe I'll make my daughter listen to this podcast. <laughs> I wanted to ask you in closing um, about your own interest in this topic. During your time at Heritage and now at Brookings, a lot of your policy writing and thinking has been on issues like healthcare and budget issues, social security. When and why did uh, this higher education uh, transformation come onto your agenda? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I think it's because I started doing more and more work in the whole area of, of economic mobility, which is a big um, um, focus here at, uh, at Brookings and other institutions, including Heritage when I was there. This general challenge of we see in America um, a lot of a large number of people at the lower ends of the income level finding it increasingly difficult to move up the economic ladder. They're getting stuck at the bottom. People on the left and the right acknowledge this. Different institutions have been looking at it. And I and others uh, have started to kind of look at that and say, why is this happening? And there are multiple factors. But one of the big factors we find, and I think pretty well everybody's agreed on this, is that education is a crucial element in how people move up the economic ladder or whether they do. And as you said, um, one of the issues we find now is that if you don't get higher education courses, 
or, or some qualification at that level, it's really difficult to move up. So if you're interested in, in, in economic ability, as I am, and you know, health is a part, part of that, urban issues, which I worked on is a part of that, um, higher education is one of those enormous bumps in the road that people face. And so that's what drew me in to looking at this. And when I started to look at it really intensively, um, as we've discussed, it's a fascinating area because there's in fact so much going on so rapidly that could make enormous differences. And just think, if you could get the, the cost of higher education for the typical American uh, family, typical student, down to, let's say it was down to, and I think this is quite realistic, to 20% of what it is today. Then start think about thinking about what happens in terms of economic mobility, moving up the ladder. If you're from a modest household and you can get very high quality, customized higher education that actually gives you the skills you need to go into the field of work you want to go, to go into at no debt or very little debt, think about what that would mean for somebody's ability to be able to move up to the middle class, you know, buy their first house, get a car, send their kids to college. Uh, I think it could have a dramatic effect on mobility in this country, and that's why I'm very interested in it. That's, that's, that's really interesting, and we'll keep uh, watching for uh, more from you on this topic. So um, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Learn more about Stuart Butler and his research on our website, brookings.edu. My thanks to my producer, Zach Kulzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu.